This is the last week of the series AD we've been in for quite some time now. We'll be in Acts chapter 10, and I, I feel compelled to give you some background before we jump into Acts 10. So I'm going to go back just a little distance. I'm going to go back to Genesis 1 and give you some background, okay? Genesis 1, there's some fundamentals here. Genesis 1, we know that God creates Adam and Eve right off the bat, and we know that he then, uh, all people have come from Adam and Eve, so we know that he's created only one human race. There's only one human race. And as years unfold, Genesis 1 to 11, years unfold, Adam and Eve sin, and their sin has been somehow passed on to all of us. All of us that have ever come have sinned as well. There's diversity that unfolds. Now there's a diversity of color of skin, of language, of geography, of the economy, of professions, of different levels or lack of wealth, etc., etc. So there's this, there's this one human race, there's this great diversity, the entire human race deals with this sin issue, and you get to, to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God shows up to this one man, Abraham, and he says to Abraham, he says, in effect, I'm going to reveal myself to you and to your descendants in a very special way, and I'm going to do it with the purpose of you then being this, this light to all of the other people on the planet, all of the other people of this one single human race, and you got this privileged position. I will re- reveal myself to you, and then you live under my lordship, my leadership, and you can show others what I'm like. You can show others how incredible it is to live under the, the lordship of the God of the universe. And in Genesis 12:3. Uh, It says this, God says to Abraham, all of the families on earth will be blessed through you. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. And and initially it's going to be by them watching Abraham and his descendants, but it becomes uh, clear through time that one of the descendants will be the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, then, then he will be this one means of redemption. Okay, there's one human race, and there'll be this one means of redemption, the Messiah. And it becomes clear that the Messiah is going to redeem them, not just by giving every human being the chance at being forgiven their sins, but listen to this, this is so cool. It's to also be given the chance to abandon their sins and live without their sins. So it's this dual blessing through this one means of redemption that the Messiah will bring. It's not just that God says, I will forgive all these sins that have caused so much wreckage and damage. It's not just he says, I will forgive. That would be huge. But even better than that, he says, I'll do something even more. I will, I will give you the capacity as you follow me and my Messiah to live in such a way you can leave your sins behind. You can live a life just shedding the sins as you go. So there's this, this one means of redemption that gives um, the power to be free from the penalty of sin, which is you get forgiveness, but also to be free from the power of sin. So it, you don't have to live that way your entire way. So some time unfolds, and, and the descendants of Abraham are called Israel, or they're called the Jewish people, and, and they lose sight of what God has done. They have this awesome privilege, but they're no more special than anybody else, and they lose sight. They begin to think they're better than everyone else, and everyone else has a title Gentile. Every non-Jew is a Gentile, and they begin to think that they're the privileged ones, and they're the only ones worthy of God, the only ones worthy of forgiveness, and they begin to look down on everybody else, and they think that that all of those people, they are the unworthy ones. They're the unregenerate one. We're better than all of those. And as, as I've been reflecting upon that, and as what I see in Acts chapter 10, I see that, that prejudice is part of the brokenness 
of the entire human race. And I've spent some time in the past week, actually weeks, reflecting upon the prejudices in my life through the years and currently that I'm aware of, and I suspect there's some I'm not. And I can say with confidence that every single one of you is also prone to the sin of prejudice as well, just like Israel was. And it may be currently, for you or for me, for me it may be a prejudice around race because we forget there's just one human race. We're all part of one human race. It may be prejudice around ethnicity, where we think my ethnicity is better than someone else's. It may be around a socioeconomic condition. Maybe my job is better or more distinguished than someone else's. I have more money than they have. I have a better home. I have better transportation. There's this sense of I'm better there less than I am. It may be around age. I recognize there may be some of us that are young. They look at the rest of you that are old, and we think how old and decrepit you are. Those of us that are young think that sometimes. (laughs) I'm prone to that, just like some of you other young folks are here. Some of us are prejudiced about appearance. We see someone, and because of their appearance, we think less of them, and yet there's just one human race. It may be prejudice around language, maybe actually a different language or different accent with the same language. It may be prejudice around certain styles of music, around education levels. It may be prejudiced about certain kinds of sins. It may be this sense of, I know I'm a sinner, but I don't, sin, I don't have the sin you have. You, you are the unregenerate one. You're not as worthy as I am. Every single one of us is prone to prejudice. Every one of us in Israel experienced that. And, and God, beyond Abraham, would remind the people of Israel again and again, he came for the entire human race to offer this one means of redemption to all. And in Isaiah 49, 6, years after Abraham, he would say to the people of Israel, he'd be speaking about them, but also about the Messiah. He would say, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, to everybody else And you'll bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. He's reminding them, I didn't come just to save you. You're not a privileged group. There's one human race, one means of redemption. And then there's this uh, small book of the Bible called Jonah. A lot of you would be familiar with it. The whole point of Jonah is, is that there's this one man that God picks out of the descendants of Abraham. And he says, there's this people that are about five or 600 miles east of, of Israel. And, and they're the people of Nineveh, and history would tell us that they were the most brutal of people. History records that not only did they aggressively attack and defeat people, but they enjoyed brutal bloodshed. And the people of Israel knew about them and experienced some of the bloodshed, and they thought those people, they're on the doorstep of hell. So God comes to this guy Jonah and says, I want you to, to go to them and offer redemption to them. And Jonah's thinking, I may be a sinner, but I'm not the kind of sinner they are. There's there's no way. And so Jonah leaves where he is, and he goes to this town called Joppa. I've got a map I want to show you, because I'm going to come back to it a little bit. Joppa is on this western edge of Jerusalem. It's on the Mediterranean there. It's this coastal city there. And so he goes to this coastal city of Joppa. Again, I'm going to come back to it. And he's going west, and Nineveh is east. And some of you know the story. He ends up in in the Mediterranean Sea. He's willing to die rather than be a tool of redemption because he's afraid that Nineveh might repent and be saved. And, but God loves Jonah too much and Nineveh too much, and God saves him with this fish, and Jonah ends up back on the beach, uh, still alive, and Jonah finally goes, and, and stunningly, 
There are 120,000 people in Nineveh. And they've lived a life of enjoying shedding the blood of the human race. And they hear about the grace of God and they repent. I mean, from one into the other, they repent. For a whole generation, they follow God. And then future generations fall back again, but, but they repent. And this, it's this reminder to Israel, there's this one human race. And there's this one means of redemption for all. So Jesus comes. Um, I'm finally at the New Testament. I'm not even through my introduction yet. So um, if the second crowd begins to show up, just make room for them. Scoot to the middle. I'll kind of, and I'll start back over with them and pick them up again, and we'll all finish together then. And so Jesus shows up. I'm to the New Testament now. He shows up. There's this one human race, one means of redemption. In John 10, 16, one of many places, he reminds people he's here for everybody. He says, I have other sheep too. He's talking about himself as the shepherd. I have other sheep too. They're not in this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, and there'll be one flock with one shepherd. There's one human race. There's one means of redemption for all people. He's saying, I'm that means of redemption. I've come for everybody. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, he's died on the cross to pay for our sins. He's risen from the dead to give us new life. It says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority or all power in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. You hear that? all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then get this, and teach these new disciples, these new followers, to obey all the commands I've given you. He's going back again and saying, I didn't come just to forgive you. That would be fantastic. I've come to forgive you and then give you a new life, abandoning your sins. Teach them that. Teach them, I will give them power. You teach them what I said. I'll give them power to actually live that out. Teach these new followers to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. One human race, one means of redemption. Now now we finally hit Acts 10. And Jesus has done all of this. And Peter's going to be, in fact, Peter's become the leader of the church. And, and Acts 10 unfolds. And the very opening line says this. It says, in Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius. That beginning phrase is packed with information in it. It says, in Caesarea, I've got that map again. Caesarea is on the coast of the Mediterranean. And Caesarea actually was, um, it was the model city of Rome for that entire region. It was their showcase city. They poured enormous suns into it. They had glistening buildings. And and for the entire region of, of Judea and Samaria and Galilee and even beyond that, it was their picture of the power and beauty of Rome. And so it was their showcase city, and right in the middle of the city, they build this temple to worship Caesar. And so there's this massive city, all the funds pumped in. There's this temple to worship Caesar. There are more Gentiles that live there than Jews that live there, even though it's right on the edge. It's actually part of of the Jewish people's region there. There are more Gentiles in it. And, And the Jews, they hated Caesarea. They thought it was on the doorstep of hell. They thought it was the personification of evil. And the 10th chapter of Acts begins focusing on that city. And it says there was this Roman army officer named Cornelius. And so he's an officer in the army that serves Caesar as Lord. But he wants to know God. And he's been praying and seeking God. And on this given day recorded, God responds to him in a very powerful, profound way. God sends an angel to him and says, I've heard your prayers. Here's the deal. Send some men down to Joppa, 
Remember the city of Joppa? Send some people down. Let me get the map again. Send some people down to Joppa. There's a man named Peter there. And have him come back here. He's going to have a message for you. Look at the map again. So, so we flip down then. So Peter's down this road at Joppa. He's at the very same city that Jonah was at 800 years before. And Jonah's call is go to these Gentiles that you think are on the doorstep of hell. Go to them. I'm going to offer redemption to them. And so Peter now, he's the head of the church. He's in the same city. And, and he happens to be on the day that these men sent from Cornelius are just about to show up. He's on the roof praying to the same God Cornelius prayed to. In the middle of the prayer, he's surprised by a vision he's given and this message he's given. The message is there's some men about to show up, and I just want you to go with them. And so these men show up, and throughout the vision, he's, he's clear. This is, I'm going to go to the doorstep of hell, in my view, where I hold massive prejudices. I think these people are the unregenerate one, but God says go. And so he goes. He gets to Caesarea. He goes into the house of this army officer, Cornelius. And when he walks in, Cornelius says, I love this. Cornelius says, okay. Now we're all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord's given you. I would be so speechless, but Peter isn't. And he says, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. One human race. God shows no favoritism. No one is beyond regeneration. No one is. I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. He goes on then, he talks about Jesus, and he says, I know you'd be aware of this, Cornelius, because you've lived around here. You're not that far from Jerusalem. You know about Jesus, all his miracles, all his power. And then he says, you know they put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. And he says, we saw him. We ate with him. We touched him. And then he concludes by saying, he's not, he doesn't realize he's about to conclude because he's going to say a whole lot more, but God concludes it at this. He says, everyone who believes in Jesus will have their sins forgiven through his name. And he's going to keep on preaching, but all of a sudden, to Cornelius and his whole family, Peter doesn't know it, but silently in their hearts, they have begun to believe in Jesus. They've begun to trust their life to him. They have already surrendered their souls to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit shows up and begins to live in them in a visible way. Most certainly, they begin speaking in tongues that the Holy Spirit gave them. And Peter stops dead in his tracks and says, oh, my goodness. You're a God who knows no favoritism. You're a God who offers your generation to everyone. There's only one human race, and there's one means of, genera- of, of uh, redemption, and that means is Jesus. That means is Jesus. And so um, the, the fulfillment that I referenced in the beginning, way back in Genesis 12, 3, of God saying through Abraham, he's saying, I'm going to show myself to you, and through you and through your descendants, I'm going to bless the entire world. The fulfillment of that occurred on that given day in Caesarea, and the final chapter of redemption began that day and continues to this day. Reflecting on this, thinking about um, the prejudices that we are all prone to. There's a man, a church leader, an author, a writer, a pastor, a missionary, an evangelist I admire a great deal named Ajith Fernando. He says this in all of his travels. He says, I've come to realize that prejudice is often one of the last things that is touched by the process of sanctification. It's one of the last things, and it shouldn't be this way. 
It's one of the last things that's touched in someone finally becoming like Jesus. I see all other kinds of changes happening, but that seems to linger to great damage to the cause of God. Because the message of God is that everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. There's no hierarchy there. There's no hierarchy of life or wealth or education or sin. Their ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everyone's equal at the foot of the cross. And, and, and all of us need the very same redemption. All of us have offered to us the same redemption. All of us do. All of us do. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. He would say, The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. We've all been baptized into one body by one spirit. We all share the same spirit. He's speaking there of those that follow Jesus. He's saying we're all the same. It's this smaller picture of God saying, in one sense, you're all one human race. Redemption's offered to all of you. I have found myself the last several years praying this prayer sometimes several times a day. It's always when I'm around other people. I, I, I will say, Lord, let me see these people the way you see them. Let me see these people the way you see them. Because I am so prone to see them as less than. See them as different. I'm so prone to that. And it has caused me to ask God to show me who he sees and what he sees. Show me them as you see them. Let me accept them just as they are now. Let me love them just as they are now. Let me have this humility before them. And I would challenge you to reflect even now. And as the rest of the hour unfolds, even now, reflect upon where you may see people with prejudice, maybe even prejudice that's been hidden to you until this moment when the Holy Spirit is, is prompting you and pinging you of the people, the kinds of people, the type of people you would look at as less than you are. And let him remind you that there's, there's one human race. There's one human race. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And, and let him bring you, as he's continually bringing me into this, this position of humility. We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. But not only is there one human race, but there's one means of redemption. As I've said, Jesus died not just to save us from the penalty of sin, but he died to save us from the power of sin as well. And as we look at at others, as we walk with others in life, and as we see increasingly how God shows shows us that, that we are the same, we're just like them, as we accept them as they are and love them just as they are as Jesus does, it's imperative that we understand that true love never condones sin. True love never condones sin. Remember, Jesus came not just to forgive us of sins, but to allow us to walk away from our sins and abandon our sins. So, so true love, if I, if I really love you, if you really love me, we'll walk beside each other, and we will, in deep humility, we'll point out one another's sins to each other, so we can allow Jesus to help us rid ourselves of those sins. This topic was picked months ago, and the framework of it all up to this point, the framework was picked months ago, and I did not know, of course God did know, that on Friday morning that the Supreme Court of the United States would make gay marriage 
legal in all of the states. And of course, you know, it's a very um, prominent and very potentially very divisive subject. But there's some things for us to know as the church. I say this with deep humility, deep conviction, deep respect. While our, our president's view of practicing homosexuality has evolved, and while the Supreme Court's, our Supreme Court's view of practicing homosexuality has evolved, the Supreme Being's view of practicing homosexuality has not evolved. In the Old Testament with great clarity, in the New Testament with great clarity, God says that is one of many, many, many sins. He says, make no mistake about it. He is the one who has created every human being, knows every human being, knows everything about them. And he says, make no mistake about it, that practicing homosexuality is a sin, one sin among many, many sins. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 begins this way. It says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols, or commit adultery, or male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive, or cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And in the midst of, of a list, it's actually a fairly short list. He could have filled the book, I'm sure. In the midst of a list, he says, homosexuality, make no mistake about it, it is a sin against God and against the person and against humanity. It's a sin, just like all the other sins he lists. If you want to read more, Romans chapter 1 speaks extensively about the sin of homosexuality and practicing it. It's not a sin to to be tempted to it. It's a sin to practice it. 1 Timothy 1 speaks to it as well. He says, make no mistake, all of these are sins. That is one of them. But then he goes on and says, and this this is the power of Jesus to transform us, to walk away from our sins. He says, some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He's saying, the people he's writing to, he said, all those sins uh, probably hit a bunch of you, he said, hit a bunch of you, and you were like that, and you know that. And you were the thief, or you were the practicing homosexual, or you were the greedy person, you were whatever, you were like that, but you are no longer that person. You no longer live that way. There was a time you brought that to Jesus and said, help me live without this sin. And he's, he's given you the strength and the power day by day by day to abandon that sin. I've had the privilege of sitting with some that will be worshiping here today and sitting with them sometimes over a long period of time and with a very humble spirit to say to them, the God that loves you so much. I, I, know, I know you're drawn deeply to, toward homosexuality. The God who loves you so much says this is a sin. And he says he has a better life for you than practicing homosexuality. And some of those people that will be worshiping today have believed Jesus and they have followed him with abandon and sexual purity and they've experienced a freedom and a joy and a vitality of life they would never have found that they're living now day by day by day. Why? Because as followers of Jesus, as the church, we have to realize there's only one human race. I mean, we're all the same. There is one means of redemption offered to everyone. 
And the redemption for us, the hope for us, and the hope for anyone is not just forgiveness, it's forgiveness and becoming more and more like Jesus and abandoning our sins. There's someone who will likely be worshiping here today. I had the great privilege of sitting with at a meal and in deep humility saying, you are living with your girlfriend and because of the active sexual life with her, you must know that God says that's a sin. And he's saying either move out and have sexual purity or marry her. And this man, who again likely be worshiping here today, this man uh, heard God in that. And this man married the girlfriend he was living with. And they're in the process now in this deep commitment before God of learning what it's like in deep commitment and deep security to love each other unconditionally as a married couple, husband and wife. And they would have never known the vitality and joy that they find now if they hadn't realized what I'm doing is a sin and God's given me a way in Jesus to, to walk beyond that. There's a mother who will likely be worshiping here today who came to me a few short years ago and said that a single woman uh, came to me and said, I'm unexpectedly pregnant and I'm on my way to have an abortion. A friend told me I just had to stop here on my way. And in deep humility, I said to her, here's the truth, is there's a, a child that God's created growing inside of you, like a precious child. And, and you are this child's chosen mother. And you have the choice now to give this child life or not. And I pray you give this child life. And she felt the love of God and the grace of God. And now some time has passed, and I cannot tell you the many times I've seen this child running back and forth down the hallway back here. And this mother who worships here is thriving vibrantly as a single mom. And she's living joy that she would have never known if she hadn't had someone in humility say, man, level at the foot of the cross, but this is what Jesus says. I've sat down with some who are worshiping in this room, and I've said, everything you make, all your money, use it for yourself. And in deep humility, I've said that God calls that greed. And he calls you to a better life of generosity. And some of those men and women have believed that. And some of them have abandoned a life of greed. And by the way, when I told them that, I said, you may, you may think there's a, a self-centered motive in me telling you that. So I've said, it doesn't matter if you give or not, because my salary's set. I won't make a penny more if you give or not. And if that doesn't convince you, then don't ever give to FCC. Give someplace else to God's cause. But God says the life you're living is greed, and he calls you to life of generosity. And there are people that are experiencing joy, unbelievable joy, because they, they believe God in that. I've sat down with some people, and I'm deep humility. I've said, you are failing to forgive someone, and God says that's a sin. And he says he will help you do it. And they have believed God in that, and they have been able to forgive, sometimes deep wounds, and they're experiencing freedom they never would have known. Dawn's on, I better quit because no one's ever going to meet with me again if I keep on with this. this I'm just done. <clears throat> I'll be calling people the next six months asking you to meet with me. No one's going to meet with me then. Here, here's the deal. We, we are, we are one beggar 
telling another beggar where we found bread. It's not just for forgiveness. We thank God for that, but it's for more than that. It's for forgiveness, and it's, it's shedding our sins as we go by the power of Jesus. And we, the church, are the ones to tell each other and tell the watching world in deep humility, there's this incredible God that sees us all the same, all one human race, and he's got this one means of redemption. It's Jesus. If you abandon your life to him, he'll forgive you, and he'll give you a path of shedding your sins. I would ask you this. Where do your prejudices lie? What type of person do you look at and think they are less than me? And when you, as you recognize the answer to that, confess and repent and turn from that. God, help me see people the way you see them. There is one human race. And then I would say, would you have the courage in deep humility to take not just grace to each other in the watching world, but take grace and truth. In John 1, 14, it says that Jesus came fully in both grace and truth, and we're to be like him. Would you take all of grace and all of truth, and would you have, have the deep humility, but the courage and the belief in God to be able to say to someone out of deep humility, to say, there's something that I see that's a sin, and Jesus can free you from that, and your life will be so much better. One human race, one means of redemption. Father in heaven, I pray that you will stir us this morning, uh, that we will be in awe, that as broken and as sinful as we are, that your son would have paid a high price to offer us forgiveness and a new life in a life that abandons sin as we progress through it. May we embrace that. May we believe that. May we experience that. May we become increasingly people of such deep humility that others will see that in us, and it will make, there will be a winsomeness about that, an attractiveness about that. It will draw barriers down. It will give us this avenue to speak into another life for whom Jesus has died and say, here's this one means of redemption, and here's the whole picture of redemption it's forgiveness, and it's abandoning sin as well. And Father, may there be people in our lives that will have the courage and the humility to come to us when they see something, and in deep humility, point out to us as well. Uh, I pray, Father, that out of this one simple passage in Acts 10, that it be a cornerstone of change for us in how we approach our lives, the lives of others, and the lives of a watching world. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.